12 Years in the Saddle for Law and Order on the Frontiers of Texas by Sergeant W.J.L. Sullivan, Texas Ranger. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. 12 Years in the Saddle, Chapters 32 through 35. Chapter 32. My Experiences with a Bearskin Overcoat When I went up to Eddy, New Mexico, to look for Jim Turner, I took with me my big bearskin overcoat, as the weather had turned very cold. My overcoat was a scary-looking thing, but I did not realize it when I first got it, so much as I did later on, after I had had a number of unusual experiences on its account. I was wearing the coat one morning while standing on one of the street corners in Eddy. I had my mind on something rather important to me then, and was not thinking about my coat, when suddenly a horse driven by a man and lady commenced shying at me, and backing off as if it wanted to get as far away from me as possible. I was not enjoying the thought of anything being frightened at me, but suddenly remembering my coat, I got out of sight as quickly as possible. My movement did no good, however, for the horse kept up his rearing and pitching until he had turned the buggy over and damaged it in several places. The occupants of the buggy, fortunately, were not hurt, but I regretted the accident, and, feeling that I was the cause of it, I humbly begged their pardon, and then walked away, hoping that my coat would not get me into any more scrapes like this. After walking several blocks away from the scene of the first accident, I met a lady carrying a baby in her arms. Following her was her little boy of five years, with his large bulldog at his side. As soon as the dog spied me, he made a grab for my coat. He looked fierce, and I knew it wouldn't do to let him get the advantage of me, so I drew my six-shooter and placed the end of it in the brute's mouth. The woman screamed and asked me not to shoot the dog. Now, I did not want to kill him unless I was forced to, but he struggled so hard to get to me that I had to keep the pistol in his mouth and walk backward. I told the woman if she would call the dog off I could get away without having to hurt it, but she was too excited to listen to my proposition and continued to plead for her dog's life. She said he was her only protection when her husband was gone, and that he was a good companion for her little boy. That might have been true, but she could not see any further than that, and could not realize that there was another side to the situation. I told her that the fact that the dog was valuable did not make it impossible for her to take him off me, and let me go on, but she did not look at it in that light, and I had to back down the street until I reached the courthouse steps before I could get rid of the brute. A woman and a dog following me down the street was quite an event to me, and all because of my overcoat. And that was satisfactory to me, so far as the lady was concerned, but I would rather not have a woman and a dog both to deal with at the same time. It wasn't long after that, however, until my overcoat caused a lady to run away from me. I was in Fort Worth, having just returned from Thurber, Texas, to which place I had taken $50,000 from Dallas so the miners could be paid off. Colonel Hunter, the president of the mines, had requested me to do this, as robberies had become quite numerous. It was still very cold, and I had on my bearskin overcoat. Early one morning, while riding on a streetcar, sitting in the corner next to the window, an old lady came in and sat down by me. She failed to see me at first, but when she did chance to look in my direction, she gave a scream that startled everybody on the car, and before anyone could reach her, she ran out of the door and jumped off. The conductor stopped the car and asked her what the trouble was. She replied that she did not want to ride with a bear. The conductor assured her that I was no bear, that I only had on a bearskin overcoat. She came back in and looked cautiously over her glasses at me, 
and giving another unearthly yell, she quickly fled and left the car again. The conductor tried to pacify her and told her that I was only a Texas Ranger wearing a bearskin overcoat, but she said, I am satisfied that he is a bear. John told me when I left Tennessee that I had better be careful and watch out, for there were lots of strange things down in Texas, and you bet Mary is going to obey John. We went on then and left Sister Mary standing by the side of the track, still obeying John. Uh, my overcoat was quite comfortable in cold weather, but I was getting tired of the trouble that it was constantly causing me. Still, I had hopes that it would get me into no more scrapes, and kept on wearing it that night. The next morning I put it on again, and as I left the hotel to go downtown, I passed a little girl, who was about nine or ten years old, standing on the front gallery of her home. Upon seeing me, she called to her mother, telling her to come quick and see Santa Claus. While that experience was not so embarrassing as the others, it gave a hint that I was to always have trouble with my overcoat, so I made a solemn vow to sell it as soon as possible, for, on its account, many visions were haunting my mind. Among other things, there was the buggy and horse incident, the bulldog, the little girl and Santa Claus, and an old lady standing by the track, obeying John. Chapter 33. A Lively Chase While generally successful in arresting noted criminals, although often after a long chase with a battle at the end of it, Sometimes when the man sought for was almost within my grasp, he eluded capture. A case of this kind was my pursuit of two men who had held up a Fort Worth and Denver train four miles west of Childress, Childress County, Texas. In the latter part of 1894, while on the way from Amarillo to San Saba to appear in court against some cattle thieves whom I had arrested in San Saba County, the train which I was on met, at Bowie, a train on which was Walter Lyons, a cattle inspector, who asked me to meet him at Canadian City as soon as possible to assist him in arresting some cattle thieves. The next morning I heard, while in Fort Worth, that a train on the Fort Worth and Denver Railroad had been held up, but I could get no confirmation of the report. Upon arriving at San Saba, however, I found that the report was true. As soon as my business in court at San Saba was finished, I hurried to Childress to hunt for the robbers. In Wichita Falls, I saw City Marshal Charles Landers of Vernon, who had come there on the same business that I came for, and also Bill Ish, ex-deputy marshal. They told me that in Vernon, the previous day, they had seen a stranger riding and driving three horses, one of which was packed, and they had intended to investigate him, but he left sometime during the night, and they lost his trail. That they went to Wichita Falls the next morning, hoping to find him there. They also told me that they saw him from the car window as they were coming to Wichita Falls, and he was then driving only two horses. When they told me this, I proposed going back on the next train and riding until we met him, as he probably would not come to Wichita Falls. After some discussion, this plan was agreed to. When we boarded the train, the conductor gave me permission to pull a bell cord and stop the train if I saw the man. After going about seven miles, I saw him and stopped the train, and George Thorne, the conductor, ran the train back as far as he could without placing the sleeper in danger if there should be a fight. My two men and I then got off and arrested him. Upon searching him, we found papers showing that he had been arrested at Harrell, and that he had been arrested for carrying a pistol, and had paid $22 in cash, and left the missing horse as security for the balance of the fine. He gave his name as Farmer, from Turkey Creek, Greer County, claiming to be on his way to Denton County after some horses he had there. I asked him why he had so many horses with him when he was going after more of them, and he replied that he did not want to ride the same one all the time. All this took some time, and the engineer kept ringing the bell and blowing the whistle to hurry us as the train was late. 
Although satisfied that the prisoner had stolen the horses which he had, I was without proof, and not believing him to be implicated in the train robbery, I released him, and got back on the train, and went to Iowa Park. Farmer had, apparently, told us a straight story, but I became suspicious after reaching Iowa Park, and Bill Ish and I got a buggy and went back and re-arrested him, searching him carefully, giving his papers a closer inspection, and questioned him fully as to himself and his movements. He stuck to his story of going to Denton County after horses, and although still suspicious, we were unable to make anything of him, and again released him, and returned to Iowa Park, where we spent the night at Scott Butler's hotel. I desired to be called in the morning in time for the westbound local, and, while sitting in the sitting room that morning, a stranger came in. He seemed to be chilled through, as though he had spent the night out of doors, and I asked him if he had camped out. He said no, that he had spent the night at the section house, a mile or so down the road. I asked him what he had done with his horse. What horse, he said. The one you were riding, said I. Well, that was a pony. I left him at Decatur two years ago with Ridley, he replied. I am not talking about two years ago, said I. I'm talking about the horse you rode to the railroad. Oh, that horse. I sent him to Greer County. And what did your partner do with his, I asked. He sent his also, he replied. I asked him if both horses were bays, and he said, no, they are both gray. Upon asking him what he had done with his saddle and bridle, he said he had none, that he had ridden his horse bareback with a hackamore. This made me more suspicious than ever, and I asked him what his partner had done with his saddle and bridle. He said he had sold them to a man at the cement works, four miles west of Kenna. In answer to my question, he said his name was John D. Hobart, and his partner's name was Bill Hughes, and he had known the latter for eleven years in Brown County. Further questions brought out the fact that he had separated from Hughes near the railroad dam, east of the flour mill, in Canna, about three days previously. When you left Bill, I asked, where did you tell Bill to write to you? Well, I didn't tell him, said he. Where did Bill tell you to write him? He didn't tell me. Did you shake hands when you parted? No. Why not? Had you quarreled? No, we were friends. What, you had known each other eleven years, and you had parted without telling each other where to write and without even shaking hands, although you had had no quarrel? I will have to arrest you, I said. Breakfast was announced about this time, and Landers, Ish, and I, together with the prisoner, ate breakfast, and afterward boarded the train and went to Vernon, where Hobart was jailed. From Vernon, I wired to Captain J.V. Good, superintendent of the Fort Worth and Denver Railroad, to send the engineer and fireman of the train, which was held up near Childress, to identify the prisoner. They came, but were unable to swear positively that he was the robber, as his face was masked at the time of the holdup. They said, however, that his build, clothes, and hat corresponded to those of the robber, as also did his voice. I then took my prisoner to Childress and jailed him, leaving Ish and Landers at Vernon. When I arrested Hobart, I told him he was arrested for train robbery. He said that on the evening of the robbery, he was digging a cellar for Pat Leonard, 20 miles south of Childress. After jailing Hobart at Childress, I went to Amarillo, telling him I would return in the morning and take him out to Leonard's to see if his story as to the cellar could be verified. On arriving at Childress the following morning, I was met by a deputy sheriff who told me that Hobart's story was true and that he had seen him dig in that cellar on the day he claimed and that it would have been impossible for him to have reached the scene of the holdup at the time it took place. Acting upon this, I had Hobart released from jail and gave him $5 and a ticket to Iowa Park. That was the last I ever saw of Hobart, although I tried afterward every way I could think of to find him. The robbery for which I had arrested Hobart was committed within a few miles of Childress, and the local officers had not succeeded in arresting the robber, 
So when I found too late that there was no truth in the story of either Hobart or the deputy sheriff as to Hobart having been at Pat Leonard's on the day of the robbery, I was compelled to believe that the deputy sheriff had secured his release through jealousy over the fact that the robber had been arrested by a ranger after the county officers had failed. When I released Hobart at Childress, I took the train and went to Amarillo, where I had to appear in court against three cow thieves, a Mr. Swen and his two sons. The next morning I went to the post office and found a letter to me from the jailer at Vernon. Inside of the envelope was another letter written by John Hobart to his uncle at Monktown, Fannin County, in which he made a full confession of the robbery. I succeeded in getting Judge Wallace and Judge Plemons and District Attorney D.B. Hill to release me that evening, for I showed them the letter and explained to them that I wanted to follow Hobart. The next morning I started to Decatur, and upon reaching there, I inquired at the livery stables to find out if Hobart had hired a horse at any time, but found that he had not done so. I found, though, that he had registered at one of the hotels as John D. Hobart, Honeygrove, Fannin County. I then boarded the train and went to Honeygrove. When I reached that place, I went to a merchant, in whom I could confide, and asked him if he knew anyone in the vicinity of Monktown by the name of George Hobart. He stated that he did, and that Monktown was 18 miles from there on the Red River, that George Hobart was running a big cotton gin at that place. I asked him if he knew of anyone at Monktown whom I could trust, and he told me that Deputy Sheriff Wyatt of that town was a trustworthy man. I went to Monktown that evening, and the next morning I hunted up Mr. Wyatt and explained the case to him, and after describing Hobart to him, I asked Wyatt to go out to George Hobart's and see if John Hobart was there. I also told him that if he failed to find him, to tell his uncle, George Hobart, that he had met his nephew three months ago at Decatur, and had been informed by him that there was a man there who had some horses and mules for sale, and that he wanted to know the name of the man with whom his nephew lived in Decatur, so that he could find him and get some information from him in regard to the party who had the horses and mules to sell. Wyatt immediately went out to George Hobart's place and saw him, but failed to find the man whom we wanted. He returned, however, with the information that John Hobart lived nine miles from Decatur with a man by the name of John Ridley. I went to Fort Worth and wired Sheriff Moore at Decatur, asking him if he knew a man by the name of John Ridley in that country, and if he did, to meet me at the depot on the arrival of the next train from Fort Worth, with horses and saddles for us both. He answered that there were two brothers, Jim and John Ridley, living nine miles from Decatur, so when I arrived at that town, Moore was waiting for me with horses and saddles. We left at once for Ridley's, and, on the way there, Moore informed me that he had a friend who lived between the two Ridley brothers, and that we had better see his friend first, as we might obtain some information from him. We called by and saw this man, who informed us that he had been at Jim Ridley's the evening before, and at John Ridley's that morning, and that he had not seen anyone who fitted the description of John Hobart. He said, however, that he did see such a person in Decatur the Friday before, with John Ridley and his wife. After we left this man... I suggested to Moore that I go to Ridley's and spend the night, and tell them I was hunting land to rent, but he would not agree to that. We decided to return to Decatur then, for, as court was in session at Decatur, Sheriff Moore had to be there. The next morning I went to John Ridley's, and when I knocked, a lady came to the door and informed me that she was Mrs. Ridley. "'Is your husband here?' I asked. "'No, sir,' she replied. "'If you came from town, you met him not far back.' "'I did meet a man about two miles back,' I answered." and I suppose he was your husband. I then told her I lived on Denton Creek, where I was feeding 2,000 beeves. I heard in Decatur, I continued, that there was a young man with you and your husband last Friday, and that he wanted to hire to you, but the party who told me didn't know whether you hired him or not, and if you did, 
He said he didn't think you needed him, and that as I am needing help very badly and giving attention to my cattle, I would like to hire him if he's here and you do not need him. That was John Hobart, she replied, but you would not want him on your place, as he is such a vulgar man. No, I don't want him, I replied, if he is a tough character, for I have a wife and four grown daughters. He is a right tough character, she said. But in case I am forced to have him, I said, where do you think I could likely find him? Well, I expect you'll find him in his grandfather's, who lives on Emerson's Prairie, 18 miles from Paris. His grandfather is named Saul Hildeman. John Hobart has 150 acres of land at his grandfather's, and he's probably there attending to it. In the letter which John Hobart wrote to his uncle, which was sent to me by the jailer at Vernon, and which he confessed to the robbery, he stated to his uncle that he supposed this jail business would make his cake all dough with his girl. So I asked Mrs. Ridley if he had a girl, and she replied that he did, that her name was Emma Kitchens, and that she lived on Emerson's Prairie. After gaining this information, I returned to Decatur and went to Paris, hired a buggy and team, and went out to Emerson's store, where I learned the way to Mr. Hydman's. When I reached there, I introduced myself to him under another name, and stated to him that I was renting land south of Paris, but that I had accumulated enough money to buy me a home, that I met his grandson about three months ago, and he told me he had some land in this part of the country, and that I had come out to see about buying it. And the old gentleman showed me the land, and stated he would be glad if his grandson would sell it and settle down with his father near Brownwood. Returning to Paris, I left at once for Brownwood, and upon arriving there, the deputy sheriff and I went to Mr. Hobart's, twenty miles from Brownwood. Mrs. Hobart informed me that her husband was two and a half miles from there, helping a neighbor kill hogs. When we arrived at this place, the deputy sheriff introduced me to someone as Jones, and just then a man stepped up and said, Hello, Sullivan. I had my mustache and beard blacked in order to avoid detection by those who might know me, but this fellow seemed to recognize me after all. Uh, you must be mistaken in my name, I said, for my name is Jones. Oh, you used to guard the jail in Mangum in Greer County, he replied, against a mob that wanted to hang Race Thomas and Jeff Adams for murder. I told him he was mistaken in my name, and asked, Where is Mangum? It is fifty-five miles north of Canna in Greer County, he replied. What road is Canna on? I asked. On the Fort Worth in Denver. I have never been any further north than Fort Worth, I replied. He gave it up and said he supposed he was mistaken. It was now dinner time, and we all went in and took our places around the table. Tom Hobart, being a visitor, the host asked him to return thanks. He did so, and from the length of the blessing and the way he asked it, I imagined that he was a Methodist. When he had finished, I said, Gentlemen, we ought always to be thankful for the luxuries of life that we receive, but, as a general thing, we are not half as thankful as we should be. Are you a member of the church? asked Hobart. Yes, sir, I am. To what church do you belong? To the Methodist, I replied. Oh, give me your hand, he replied. I am a Methodist, too. After dinner, I told the old gentleman I had met his son, and he told me about having some land on Emerson's Prairie, that I had gone there and looked at the land, and was well pleased with it, and had about decided to quit renting land and buy me a place, and that I had come to Brown County to see about buying the land. He suggested that the deputy sheriff and I get in the buggy and go with him to the house and examine the papers. This we did. He got the deeds out of a trunk and handed them to me. I examined them very carefully, one by one. I could not have told whether they were right or wrong if my life had depended on it. I told him I couldn't see anything wrong with them. 
I asked where I could likely find his son, and he replied that he didn't know where he was, but that he would be glad for him to sell the place and settle down close to him, as he was a very wild boy. This boy's father, Tom Hobart, was a commissioner and deputy sheriff of Brown County. After the deputy sheriff and I left the house, he turned to me and said, I have placed myself in a pretty shape by introducing you as Sam Jones to the old gentleman, for he will undoubtedly find out that this is all a fake about you buying land, and he will have it in for me. What kind of a man is he? Is he a good man? As good a man as ever lived, he replied. Well, suppose we go back and tell him the truth about the matter, and lay the case before him, and show him the letter written by his son to the boy's uncle, in which he confessed to the robbery. Do you think he would rather aid us in finding the boy than to have him still run at large, and probably be killed some day while robbing some bank or express car? Or, if not killed, sent to the penitentiary for life? Well, I believe he would rather help us to find him, replied the deputy. We concluded, therefore, to go back, and I told him my real name and why I was there. He turned pale and commenced trembling, and told me he thought there was something strange about the affair when I was talking to him about buying the land. I explained to him what would probably be the fate of his son if he should run at large, and that I thought it would be better for him and better for the boy if his lawlessness should be checked. The old gentleman agreed with me, and said that while he had no idea where the boy was at that time, he would aid me in every way in locating him. I failed to find young Hobart, although I made every effort to do so. I have seen the deputy sheriff of Brown County several times, and he informs me that Tom Hobart has never heard of his boy from the time I was in Brown County looking for him. Later on, I caught Hobart's partner, Bill Hughes, 30 miles below Canna. But, John Hobart being at large, Hughes could not be convicted. Chapter 34. Battle in the Dugout I left Vernon on the 24th of December, 1896, with Sheriff Sanders of Wilbarger County and Bill Ish to hunt for a train robber. We expected to locate him and another man, Tom Wright, whom we also wanted, at a dance that was to be given that night on Beaver Creek, 20 miles below Vernon. Wright was at the dance, as we had expected, but he made his escape before we got there. After leaving the dance, we went to an old gentleman's house, about two miles away, to spend the night, arriving there about half-past one in the morning. We were quite hungry, as we had had no dinner or supper, so the lady brought out some cakes and pies, it being Christmas, and set them before us. They were delicious, and we ate a whole lot before we were through. The next morning the family, which consisted of the man and his wife and their six grown children, three sons and three daughters, gathered together to have prayer. Of course, we three men were there too. The old gentleman read a chapter of the Bible and then called on Bill Ish to pray. Bill balked. He then called on Sheriff Sanders to pray, but the latter gentleman also failed to respond. I had already made up my mind that if he called on me, I was going to pray entirely for Bill and Dick Sanders, but for some reason I was not called upon. After spending a part of the day in that part of the country, we returned to Vernon, where I learned that there was a telegram for me at the depot. The message was from Taylor Holt, the bookkeeper at Wagoner's store, and stated that four men had come to the store and beat one of the clerks nearly to death, and that they needed my assistance. I took Jack Harrell, a daring ranger, and we caught the train at once for Wagner. When we arrived at Wagner, Taylor Holt was at the train to meet us, and took us over to the store, where he described the four desperados. When he expressed the opinion that the four men were still in the country, I said that we had better sleep in the store, as I thought the men would attempt to rob the store that night. There was a bed in the store, and, as I was tired, not having slept much in two days and nights, I lay down at once to go to sleep after telling Holt to rouse me if he heard anyone, and I was not the first to wake up. 
About ten o'clock, someone called at the front door of the store, and Holt and I awoke about the same time. Holt answered the call and told the party he was coming. I buckled on my six-shooter, picked up my Winchester, and went down the aisle in the store to where I struck the opening between two counters. I hid behind a showcase and told Holt that when he got to the door to ask who it was, and if he found it was the robbers, for him to drop flat on the floor behind the door after he opened it, and as they stepped in, I would do the work for them. But when he asked who it was that they wanted, the party answered, I am Alf Bailey. I was robbed a while ago by four men. We let him in, and Holt introduced us. Bailey said he was told that I was staying in Wagoner's store that night, and he had come to ask me to aid him in finding the robbers. Bailey's store was four miles south of Wagoner's store, and instead of robbing Wagoner's store as we expected they would, the Desperados robbed Alf Bailey's store and the post office, which was in the same building, getting about $700 worth of merchandise and all the money and stamps in the post office. Judging from Bailey's description of the men, I thought I knew one of them. I asked Holt if he had any horses we could use, and he replied that all of the horses were out in the pasture. It was about as cold a night to be no wind blowing as I ever saw in the panhandle, so I told Bailey that as we had no horses, it would be better for him to go back home and meet me in the morning with the trail. Bailey said he thought the four men went toward the Indian Territory. I notified all the officers up and down the line of the robbery so they, they would be on the lookout for the robbers. I also wired the boys at headquarters to come down. The next morning, Taylor Holt, Alf Bailey, and some others and I started out over the trail. The ground was frozen so hard that only one of the four horses made an impression on it, he weighing about 1,200 pounds. After we had traveled some distance, we came to a small house where the four men had spent the balance of the night. There were signs where they had fed the horses and had cooked, eaten, and slept. We also found a number of fine quirts between the mattresses, some tobacco, and about 50 pounds of coffee in a shed room, which had been taken from Bailey's store. There was no one on the place but a big bulldog tied to the front door, and we had to enter the house through a window. Finding no one around anywhere, Taylor Holt and I went to the nearest house to see if we could get any information about the robbers. When we got to the house, Holt went around to the back door while I knocked on the front door. I had to knock four or five times before I received an answer, and it was a lady who finally opened the door. About the same time, I heard Holt speak to someone in the backyard. I hurried around there and arrested a man who was just coming out of the back door. He was the owner of the house where the four desperados had stayed the night before. I asked him a few questions in regard to where he had stayed the night before and who had stayed at his house, but I could get no information from him. I then asked him about the quirts, tobacco, and coffee at his house, and he said he knew nothing about them. I thought it best to hold him for a while, so Holt and I took him to the railroad, where we met a local. We hid our horses, boarded the local, went to Iowa Park, and met the northbound passenger train. We then turned our prisoner over to an officer, Eugene Logan, with instructions to jail him at Vernon, and then we quit the train where we had left our horses. The night was so dark that we lost our way and, after riding nearly all night, finally found ourselves at the house of a Mr. Cobbs, the place where I arrested the man the day before. Mr. Cobbs fed our horses for us, and I took time to sleep a little, after asking Mr. Cobbs to let us have breakfast as soon as they could get it ready, it then being about four o'clock in the morning. After breakfast, Mr. Cobbs told me that the man I arrested there the day before had taken his Cobbs hat and left his own new Stetson hat. I took possession of this new Stetson hat and found that it had Mr. Bailey's cost mark in it. Holt and I then returned to Wagner, where we met the men whom we were with the day before. We also found there Sheriff Moses and Constable Tom Pickett from Wichita Falls, 
Bud Harden, a special ranger from Harrell, Dick Sanders, sheriff of Wilbarger County, Johnny Williams, deputy sheriff of Wilbarger County, Charlie Landers, city marshal of Vernon, Jack Harville, Bob McClure, Billy McCauley, and Lee Queen, rangers, and Alf Bailey. I wired Sheriff Tittle of Mangum, Greer County, 55 miles off the railroad, about the robbery. My men and I left at once for Wagner's headquarters camp on Red River, where I got horses for the men, and where I received some information in regard to the four outlaws. We traveled on toward the Indian Territory, and just before crossing Red River, I met a man by the name of Dick Farrell, who was Tom Wagner's line camp rider, and who lived in the Indian Territory, 20 miles from Red River. I asked him if there was anyone at the line camp when he left, and he replied that there was no one there. I then asked him if he had seen anyone since he left the line camp, and he replied that he had seen two objects, but they were such a long distance off that he couldn't tell whether they were horses, cattle, or men, and that he couldn't tell whether they were moving or standing still. He told me he had plenty to eat and lots of horse feed at the camp, but had only one bed. So we pushed on. About an hour before sundown, a big blue norther blew up, which we had to face. Just at dusk, we came inside of Dick Farrell's camp, which was a dugout, half rock and half dirt, built in the head of a draw, and there was a bright light shining out of the mouth of the dugout down the draw. Six of my men had fallen behind, so I told the other five that those fellows in the dugout were either the outlaws or some hunters, and that we had better wait for the other men. We waited for some time, but they failed to come, and I told my men we would try it without the others. We started toward the dugout in a gallop, getting a little faster all the time, and when we got within 75 yards of the dugout, the four desperados, Joe Beckham, Hill Loftos, Red Buck, and the kid, Elmore Lewis, ran out and opened fire on us, killing three horses. I was making every effort to get my Winchester out of the scabbard, with all four of the outlaws shooting at us, but my horse was rearing and plunging so much to get away from the flare of the guns that every time I would reach down to pull my gun out, he would rear, and the horn of my saddle would knock me away from it. But, after three trials, and after getting a rib broken, I succeeded in getting my gun, when I fell off my horse and faced the four men. Three of them were in a trench leading into the dugout, and the fourth, Red Buck, was standing in the door of the dugout. I opened fire on them, as they were already shooting at us, and my first shot struck Red Buck just over the heart, and he fell backward into the dugout. The ball had only struck his breastplate, however, and he fainted, but recovered in a few minutes and again joined in the fight. I found out afterward that we hit him again, shattering his collarbone and shoulder blade. I also learned that one of the men in the trench was killed. The firing was kept up until we had emptied our Winchesters and reloaded them. Suddenly I heard a gunshot behind me, and I turned and discovered that Johnny Williams, the deputy sheriff of Wilbarger County, had come to my assistance. His horse had been killed in the fight, and Johnny returned to me at once. I asked Johnny if he was hurt, and he replied that he was not, but added that I had better lie down on the ground or the desperados would kill me. Out of all the officers, Johnny was the stayer. We fired several more shots at the three men, but they went into the dugout and fired at us from a window. I suggested to Johnny that we dismount the four men by killing their horses, which we did, and every time we fired, a horse fell. There were four animals in the pen, but it was so dark we couldn't see very well, and we afterward found that we had killed two of Wagner's horses, which they had stolen, and two of his big freight mules, which were used by Farrell. They had stolen two other horses from an old fellow in the Cheyenne country, but they had turned them out into the pasture. Later we captured these two horses and turned them over to their owner. I suggested to Johnny that we crawl across the draw and get in the corral behind those dead horses and kill the men as they came to the door. 
We then started crawling across the draw, keeping as close to the ground as we possibly could, when the men suddenly began firing on us again. Just at this time, I fell over backward into a gully, and got fastened so tight that I had to make several efforts before I could get out. I was asking Johnny all the time if he was hurt, and he crawled over to the edge of the gully that I was in, and said he was not injured at all. I whispered to Johnny that I had to get out of that gully, and if they killed me when I raised myself out of it, for him to shoot at the blaze and kill the man who shot me. I managed to get out of the gully, however, without being shot, and we began crawling again towards the corral, which was then about twenty steps away, and if we could get behind the dead horses, we would only be about fifteen steps from the door of the dugout. We had gotten on high ground when the three men skylighted us and opened fire again. Johnny asked what we had better do, and I replied that it would not hurt to crawfish a little at that particular time, and we turned back, when we met three of the other men whom we left. We fought the outlaws until eleven o'clock that night. Every time they saw any of us moving anywhere, they fired at us, and we fired back at them. Finally, we got so cold we couldn't pull a cartridge from our belts, and couldn't work the lever of our Winchesters, and we had to quit. We decided to go back that night to Wagner's camp, which was twenty-five miles away, so we started out, walking across the country. We arrived at Wagner's camp the next morning, and I gave Dick Farrell five dollars to guide me back across the country to the dugout. All of my men, except Billy McCauley and Lee Queen, refused to go back with me, so with these two men and Dick Farrell, I left for the dugout in a blinding storm of snow and sleet. When we arrived at Red River, Dick Farrell decided that he didn't care to go to the dugout if we went together, for if the men were still there, they would open fire on us as they did the night before. He suggested that he go alone, and, if they were there, to tell them he was the owner of the dugout and that he would report to me that night. I concluded to let him do this. Farrell then went to the dugout, and my men and I returned to Wagner's ranch. That evening, Farrell returned to the ranch and stated that the Desperados had left the dugout, but he found Sheriff Tittle of Greer County there with John Byers and Jim Ferris, two of his deputies. Tittle told Farrell there had been a fight there the night before, and one man killed, and he asked Farrell if he knew who had been in the fight. Farrell told him it was Sullivan and his officers and the four outlaws. He then instructed Farrell to return to Wagner's ranch and tell me that he and his men had come to the dugout to investigate the matter, and that Joe Beckham, ex-sheriff of Motley County, had been killed the night before, and that there had been seven horses killed, and for me to come there at once, and he would stay until I arrived. Farrell returned to me with this information, and I immediately got a buckboard and a pair of mules from Tom Wagner, and, with Alf Bailey, Billy McCauley, and Lee Queen, went to the dugout, where I found Sheriff Tittle and his two men. Before we entered the dugout, where Alf Bailey's goods were, we had him tell us his cost mark. We examined the goods, the cost mark on them tallied with the cost mark Bailey had given us before seeing the goods, and we recovered nearly all of the merchandise that had been stolen from Bailey. I put Beckham's body in the buckboard, and then loaded in seven saddles, three of which we took off the dead horses, and four which belonged to the four outlaws. I also put in Alf Bailey's goods, and then returned to Wagner Station on the Fort Worth and Denver Railroad. The next day, Tuesday, we buried Beckham, but the following Thursday I received orders from Adjutant General Mabry to hold an inquest over Beckham's body, and we had to take the body up and hold an inquest over it that day. Before burying him again, however, I took his wife's ring off his finger. Beckham had a sister living in Altus, and one night while I was in that town she sent for me to ask me about her brother. I went to see her and gave her the ring which I had taken from her brother's finger. I explained to her the manner in which her brother had met his death, and, although terribly grieved, she said she could not hold me responsible for his sad fate. 
She said her brother had once been an honorable man, but had gradually gotten bad, and kept getting worse, until his untimely and tragic end was inevitable. Chapter 35. An Exciting Experience with Indians After the battle in the dugout, I returned to Amarillo, and nine days later I received a message from the operator at Wagner, and one from Taylor Holt also, saying that there was a man in Paint Creek dugout by the name of Red Buck, and that he was very badly wounded and expected to die, and that his friends were making arrangements to carry him further off. At that time all of my ranger boys were out on a scouting expedition, so I sent to Vernon for the deputy marshal, and wired C. Madsen of Al Reno, chief of the marshals, to send me one of his deputies, and he sent me Ed Myers. I also had Jailer Shies of Vernon, Tom Pickett, constable of Wichita Falls, Sam Abbott of Wichita Falls, Charlie Landers, city marshal of Vernon, and Henry McCauley of Wichita Falls. With these men, I went to S.B. Burnett's headquarters camp, 10 miles from Wichita Falls, where I succeeded in getting a wagon and a span of mules, and horses for myself and men, and plenty of bacon, beef, coffee, flour, and horse feed. We then started out with Henry McCauley as teamster. That night, we camped at Burnett's line camp in the territory. Before we reached this place, however, we had quite a lively scene. There were two Negroes and an old white man at the line camp. They saw us when we were several hundred yards away and thought we were outlaws, and the two Negroes, one with a six-shooter and the other with a Winchester, were trying to get to a thicket about two hundred yards from the camp. The old white man was standing on the gallery trying to get the Negroes to stay there, and he finally succeeded after they had jumped the fence three or four times. When we reached the camp, the two Negroes, Zip and Jack, told us they thought we were Foster Crawford's gang. The white man had taken out a little notebook before we reached the camp, and had written in it, I was killed by outlaws. I told him he made his will too quick. Zip was scared so badly that his face was a creamy color, although he was naturally as black as the ace of spades. I asked him if he had been powdering his face, as it looked nearly white, and he replied that he was so badly frightened that he didn't know whether his face would ever resume its original color or not. Things quieted down, and old Zip, being also badly scared, cooked us a fine supper that night. As I was not very well acquainted with that section of the country, the next morning I concluded it would be better to have someone to go with us who was familiar with the country, so I got Jack to go in front of us, and I told him that whenever he came near a dugout he must go ahead and see if everything was all right, and then report to me, as I did not want to rush myself and the boys into anything without first knowing a few particulars. Jack located several dugouts, and came back and reported each time that there were no strangers or wounded men in any of them. About eleven o'clock that day, Jack had gotten careless and had fallen behind with the teamster. Ed Myers and I were riding in the lead. While looking ahead of us, I saw a little box house about eight hundred yards away, and a moment later I beheld three people running out of it, two at the back of the house and one in the front. I motioned to the men to come on, and Jack ran his horse up beside me, and I asked him who lived in the house. He replied that a family of white people lived there. We ran our horses toward the house, and after we had run about 500 yards, Jack said he saw a buggy leave the house. But as neither Myers nor I had seen this buggy, we rode straight for the house, while Jack kept leaning to the left, away from the house. Myers and I ran up to the back of the house, and there we found a buggy, but there was no team hitched to it. I remarked to Myers, look where Jack is, he sees something, and we ran our horses toward Jack. After we had gone about 500 yards, we discovered this buggy coming around the hill, and they were riding around to get on our left. So I told Myers to kill their horses, and he was riding next to them, and my Winchester was a long one and hard to handle on horseback. 
After Myers fired, they began firing on us, and I told him to quit shooting and wait until they started down a string of wire fence, and we would then follow them. When we get close enough to them, I will get off my horse and tear the back out of the buggy, I said. Just as I was about to dismount, Jack threw his hat in the air and yelled, Comanches! We then saw an Indian, whose name I afterward learned was Crowmore, come out of Oak Creek riding a paint pony, and he fired two shots at us with his Winchester, yelling, Sheep shear, meaning hurry up. About this time, we discovered that the people in the buggy whom we were after were Indians, three of whom were Cromore's wife, and Papoose, and his brother-in-law. Cromore and the three other Indians in the buggy then went down to their camp. Jailer Shies proposed going to the camp and explaining things, as he was acquainted with Cromore, but I advised him to stay away, as Cromore would not know him from any other officer if he saw him riding up to his camp, and as he was on the warpath, he might shoot him. Shies insisted, however, and I told him if he would go that he had better go alone, for if several of us went, Cromore would likely fire on us before we could get him located. Shies decided to go alone, and after he had been gone some time, I began to feel uneasy about him, so I took Sam Abbott, Ed Myers, and Jack, and went down to the camp to see what the trouble was. I found no one there, but while searching for Shies, I found a rope stretched in the yard loaded with what I took to be beef. I dismounted and ate a big lot of Cromore's nice beef, and then got my men and went back to the little house which we had left some time before. There I found the other members of my party, and they were just getting ready for dinner. I told them that I had eaten so much good beef that I was not hungry and did not want any dinner. Where did you get the beef? the lady of the house asked me. Well, down at Cromore's camp, I replied. Well, that beef you ate down there was an old horse that died a few days ago, and they jerked him on that rope, she said. Well, he was jerked twice then if they jerked him, for I jerked him once myself, I answered. I did not say anything else, but my meat didn't sit very well after that. About fifteen minutes after I arrived at this house, and while watching for shies, I saw forty-six Indians riding toward the house as fast as their horses could carry them. When the lady, who lived at the house where we were, saw them, she said that they were on the warpath, for she had lived in that section of the country fifteen years and knew their ways. The Indians came within five hundred yards of where we were, and with their horses formed a figure eight. Jack said that that was a sign they were going to fight us, and when they made three such figures, it meant they were coming. They went back a short distance, and then came toward us and made another figure eight, leaving them one more to make before they charged us. I then discovered two Indians running their horses toward the haystacks back of the house. I saw at once that if they reached the haystacks, they would have the advantage of us, so I sent Charlie Landers and Sam Abbott to head them off, and after a quick chase, they beat the Indians to the stacks, and the Indians returned and joined the others, who were getting ready to make the third figure eight. This lady, whom I have spoken of several times, informed me that she could speak the Indian language as well as they could, and offered to go to the Indians and deliver any message I might wish to send them. I accepted her proposition, and asked her to tell them that we were Texas Rangers, and we had a deputy marshal from El Reno with us, that we had come to this house to look for a wounded man by the name of Red Buck, that we heard they were going to take him away in a buggy, that when we saw the buggy leave the house so hurriedly, we concluded the man we wanted was in the buggy, and consequently had tried to kill the horses which were hitched to the buggy, not knowing we were after Crowborn's people. After I explained to the lady what to tell the Indians, she started toward them, swinging her blue bonnet in the air to let them know she wished to speak to them. She explained the situation to them, but they told her we had deceived her, and also told her they knew we were outlaws, as they had been informed at Fort Sill that the country was full of them, and that there had been a fight about 25 miles below there a few nights back, 
and they were satisfied we had come to kill their people. She returned and reported what they had told her. I then asked her to go to them and state to them that Tom Pickett, constable from Wichita Falls, was with our men, and that they ought to know him, as he had managed their war dances for them at Wichita Falls, and that he could prove to them that we were officers. She did this, and informed us that the Indians said to send Tom Pickett to them. Tom didn't seem to be very anxious to make the visit to the Indians just then, but I told him to lay his Winchester down on the ground where they could see it, and to go to them and try to make a treaty with them, and that if they killed him, I would kill every one of them before they could get back to Fort Sill. Tom concluded to go, and Henry McCauley, the teamster, volunteered to go with them. When they reached the Indians, they recognized Tom at once, and the chief dismounted and took Tom and Henry by the hands, and seemed to be very glad to find out that they were not outlaws. He instructed his warriors to stay where they were, while he investigated the matter a little more. He mounted his horse and came toward us at full speed, and when he arrived within seventy yards of us, he threw his Winchester across his left wrist. This was a sign that we were friends, but I didn't know it at the time, and I came very near shooting him, but Jack stopped me and explained what was meant by it. When he reached us, he dismounted, shook hands with us all, and then motioned for his men to come, and they, with Tom and Henry, soon joined us. I cautioned the man not to let the Indians get to our guns, and not to be too free with them. The Indians would point to our belts and indicate to us that they wanted us to give them some cartridges, which we did. The chief informed me that Cromore's wife had gone to Fort Sill, where she would report that we were outlaws, and that the police and soldiers would be looking for us in a short while, and we had better hire two of his men to stay with us the balance of that day and that night in order to assist us in explaining our presence in the country, and that if I would give him five dollars, he would let me have two of his men. I told him I would give him two dollars and a half, but he would not consent to take less than five dollars, so we agreed upon that amount. All this conversation was carried on, of course, with the help of the lady who was with us. When I first saw that the Indians were convinced that we were not outlaws, I had told the lady to ask them if they had seen anything of a white man, for I was uneasy about Shies, not having seen him since he went to Cromore's camp, but the Indians replied that they had not seen anyone at all. A few minutes later, Shies rode up and said that he had just been riding around the country scouting. End chapters 32 through 35